Welcome. Thanks for joining. I have a couple of important updates for regular listeners, so I encourage you to stick around for a minute or two as this message has changed. As usual, if you're new to Imposters Anonymous and haven't listened to the very brief intro to the podcast, I encourage you to pause and do so now. It's technically the first episode and provides some helpful context about the nature and aims of this project. For newcomers, I think this primer is pretty invaluable, especially considering how this podcast differs from most. Moving on to the new, there's been some developments in how I intend for this project to exist in the world. As some of you already know, I've elected not to extend this project to any social media platforms as they continue to present uniquely severe and confounding barriers to communicating effectively and objectively. The jury is more than out on the dangers of the double-edged sword that is social media, and though I could spend hours on this topic, and maybe will at some point, I'll save everyone the headache and simply say I've concluded that it's best for me to keep my distance altogether, even if only in an attempt to prioritize my mental health. That being said, social media remains the most effective way to promote a podcast, virtually anything for that matter. Considering that I would like this podcast to grow and reach as broad an audience as possible, the decision to abstain may prove to be foolish. But even so, it's the path I've decided to take. That being said, I believe I've found a suitable alternative which will allow for this project to grow and expand its collaborative potential without resorting to an ad-based model. I've started an Imposters Anonymous substack, which will in time feature commentary on each episode, my supplemental writing and thoughts, and maybe most notably a blend of anonymously submitted art, opinions, and various offerings from fellow members of the Imposters Anonymous community. This can be found at impostersanonymous.substack.com, and there's a link in the show notes as well. Subscribing will sign you up for an ongoing newsletter and give you access to the primary content, which is, to be clear, totally free if you're unsure about whether or not you'd like to fully support this project or don't feel like it's financially feasible for you. I'd like to keep all of my content optionally free for as long as I can, but if you do derive meaningful value from Imposters Anonymous and have the means to support it, I ask that you earnestly consider doing so for the cost of a decent cup of coffee a month. The ultimate aim of this project is to create a space where individuals feel compelled to overcome their insecurities and inhibitions entangled with their identity so that they can more truthfully share themselves with the world. And I hope that resonates with enough people that I can garner the necessary support to continue to be able to make this happen, in lieu of growing costs and time requirements. Of course, I'd love to be able to spend the better part of my days engrossed in this project, and continue to deliver higher quality, more thought-provoking content to my audience. And in time, I'd even like to be able to pay out the brave imposters who submit their work. But as I've said before, this project will only go as far as the audience takes it. And that's quite exciting, while also a bit terrifying. As a final note on this front, I know that due to the ubiquitous influence and spread of social media, YouTube, and Google, we've all grown accustomed to receiving the majority of our daily content for free. Though recent developments like The Social Dilemma are starting to raise the societal awareness of the hidden cost built into a business model where the perceived customers are in fact the product, we're still left with a media landscape that isn't conducive to electively supporting the strain of content that reflects the sort of world we'd like to live in. That being said, most of us are totally on board with opting into Spotify or Netflix for the ad-free value they bring to our lives, regardless of how we feel about the aims of these organizations or the opportunity to actually be a stakeholder in the content they produce. And to be honest, I think it's quite the bargain considering what these companies offer. I simply ask that if the nature of this project compels you, and you derive meaningful value from these conversations, you consider subscribing and contributing to the project, regardless of whether or not you choose to support financially. I believe we all have hidden projects, recordings, notebook doodles, opinions, poems, and all things of the sort 
And for every reason, from a bit of shyness to utter self-hatred, we've talked ourselves out of sharing them with the world. In short, I'd be honored to help you take that leap. No strings attached. Your perspective is valuable. I truly believe that. And on that note, I hope you enjoyed this episode, and thanks for giving this a shot. You don't know how lucky you are being a monkey. Welcome to Imposters Anonymous. Kevin, thanks for coming on, man. Brent, thanks for having me on. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to be doing this again. I know, I guess let's, for the listeners, we uh, we took a stab at this once and, and had some technical difficulties, but but we're here and uh, I, I don't have anything to complain about. <laughs> yeah, I managed to find a, a headphone and a mic that work now. <laughs> yeah, no, it can be harder than you would think. Uh, <laughs> technology can can sometimes turn on us and be a little bit overcomplicated. But but we're here, and I'm happy to have you. So I appreciate you making this work a second time. Yeah, of course, man. Again, thanks for taking the time. It's always fun. Yeah, yeah, of course. But yeah, I mean, one of the things that that was particularly exciting for me about doing this episode was, as we've kind of talked about that. Our, our first meeting was kind of the, the basis of everything. And, and up until this point, every guest that I've had, I've had somewhat of a prior relationship with that had some breadth to it. And for us, I was kind of excited to to talk to someone that it was literally just a single meeting, a single circumstance that we were in together that just kind of sparked it all. But I felt like there was there was something unique there. There was something interesting there and it was also that you you were engaging you, you had a certain there was a certain dynamic to our conversation that I feel like it's kind of rare and um I was just curious off the bat if there was anything like if you make a conscious effort when you when you go into meeting new people to to be a little more outspoken or interested in, in asking particular questions or if that's just kind of something that comes naturally to you so first of all, our conversation was bound to be interesting because it was my first time high on mushrooms, uh, hiking right. to the forest. <laughs> so do it. it makes for a really unique uh, introduction to to meet a friend, right? Mm-hmm. And then I meet uh, this guy, Brandon, that uh, had a lot to, to, to share and to, and to share, uh, teach me about kind of like as, as I was experiencing it for the first time. But to answer your question, uh, it's something that... I've been actively working on, uh, just like any other skill. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it's easy for people to, the tendency is for people to want to share what they think uh, and what they want to share with you. And obviously it's first in their mind, but as you kind of move on in life and like now I manage sales for the state of Florida for a medical device company. So I'm talking to surgeons, I'm talking to doctors, executives, blah, 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 you know, whoever Mm -hmm. I'm talking about business. And the higher you up in that ladder, you realize that um, to be successful, to communicate with another person, not even just a business sense, it mm-hmm. starts with listening first. Uh, right. it, you know, and so 
and that's something that I've acquired and uh, something that I'm actively trying to practice and make sure that I, I work on that. Um, mm-hmm. It makes my experience and my connection with people just that much better. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it certainly appears to be, or, or comes off as a pretty fine tuned tool for you. Um, and it's something I, I kind of touched on previously, but just that that conversation in a lot of ways can be that great equalizer where we had no prior understanding of each other or no prior relation, but we were able to to get to know each other in kind of a a pretty pretty deep and, and in an interesting way very quickly. And of course, as you said, your your state of mind I think probably opened you up a bit to to a certain depth of conversation and a certain uh, difference in perspective that you were having at the time that, and though it was, you know, kind of a, a smaller dose, kind of a more conversational <laughs> interactive dose compared to what, what those compounds can be. Um, it was, it was a particularly interesting experience for me. Uh, I guess full disclosure, I was sober at the time, but to, to interact with someone who, who was kind of having that first experience and to be able to kind of share some of my experiences as well and, and frame some of what, what you were going through and, and seeing in the world was, was a lot of fun and something I hadn't necessarily really done before. That's, that's interesting. I mean, I'm glad that you were there with me, um, because I got to bounce off bounce off, uh, ideas from you and stuff like that. Like I was feeling, obviously it was my first time. I have no expectations. And then I meet mm-hmm. this random guy that kind of does this all the time, knows a lot about it. So of mm-hmm. course, knowing, being who I am, I was, you know, going to ask you a bunch of questions and, right. um, it was a super fun day, you know, mm-hmm. definitely one for the books. Right. Yeah, and I, I guess to jump back to what you were saying, as far as kind of having this this sales background and that being something that you you're consciously working on, um, I guess I just wanted to maybe hone back in on: is that do you feel like at a young age you kind of had that gift, if you will, or if you've always kind of considered yourself a little bit on the extroverted side of things, or if you did any you know, performing arts or anything that, that forced you to kind of be outside of your comfort zone and, and, and talk to people in that sense? Or was it something that you've just kind of developed due to professional needs? So actually, as a kid, um, I really wasn't like that. You know, it's just like everybody else. I meet somebody, I want to tell them all about me and, and all this stuff and a lot mm-hmm. of ego stuff. Um, but like I said, just through my experiences, I've realized that it, it actually starts with the other person first. Like they're the, they're the hero of their own story. So if I'm going to mm-hmm. go and jump into their storyline or learn from them, I have to, you know, listen and jump into their shoes. But before uh, working like what I do now, I traveled around the world. I went to, to Germany engineering school. So, mm-hmm. you know, at an early age, like immediately when I turned 21, I just went out there and I started living in the world by myself, got an apartment by myself. And so... And and when I flew out to Germany, uh, I actually missed my flight in Spain. My cousin woke up his whole oh, family. Wow. Yeah, he had to go take his wife to the embassy or some crazy shit like that. So we get to the airport late. I'm flying into Germany. Instead of 4 o'clock midday, I'm getting there like midnight. So the guy that is waiting for me to give my keys into the apartment mm-hmm. is not expecting me. Um, I take a train to go to the small town in Germany. Uh, you know, it's midnight or whatever, 1 o'clock in the morning. I have mm-hmm. two luggages. I've herniated this because I just herniated uh, oh, my shit. disc for, from a year ago in 2015. Um, I, I'm black. <laughs> right? I can't hide that one. Right. Um, and I don't speak the language. I don't know the culture. I don't mm-hmm. have a cell phone and I don't have internet connection. 
so what happens is when you find yourself in a situation like that is you know that, okay, if I'm going to find an answer, it's not going to come from me. It's going to come mm-hmm. from somebody else. Right. And that experience or that type of experience, you know, it, it stayed with me, you know, mm-hmm. I, like, I think we were talking about it before, like people say that they travel to find themselves and all this other stuff. Mm-hmm. But what actually happens for me anyway was, you know, in traveling and trying to find yourself, you actually make yourself like I've made, I made myself in those moments. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's helped me a lot since then. That right. was way better than anything school could teach you for sure. Yeah, oh, I'm sure. And I think it's, it's fascinating that, that we kind of, or that you kind of jumped right into the identity aspect of things. And of course it is pretty integral to the the whole concept of this project and it, it definitely, as as you started to speak about that, it, it makes me immediately kind of think about something that we've spoken to before in which you've always felt a little bit, or at least at a young age, kind of a little bit like an outsider, a little bit detached from a sense of group identity that you could, something that you could really stick with. You felt like, you know, these are my people, This is this is who I am. And you had to kind of through experiences like this, just figure things out as an individual. Um, so I'm just curious if you can maybe, maybe speak to that a little bit more, um, and and how you kind of came to that and how you've evolved in that sense. Like my family, uh, what we talked about before coming up, growing up with a mixed. uh, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to some extent, yes. And and however you want to answer that is, is totally fair game. But I guess what I'm getting at at base is just, how you've gotten to where you are and how you understand yourself as an individual, as opposed to what you kind of felt like things were when you were younger. So I guess, then let me know if I'm not answering the, the, the question like correctly or anything, mm-hmm. but the way I understand it is at first, and I think what you might be alluding to was my story when I was growing up, you know, my parents are from the Dominican Republic. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad has a white Spanish ancestry, right? My aunts mm-hmm. down that side, they're blue eyes, blonde hair, blah, blah, blah. They're white. Um, and as far as I know, as best as I can collect, there were slave owners or if not, it had indentured people working for them in the Dominican Republic. And on the flip side of that, my mom's side, they're dark. That's where I get my color from. Mm-hmm. And, uh, as far as I know, it was one guy, uh, a black guy that used to work for a French family. He came to Haiti during the French revolution to help things out there. Once things calmed down, he went to the Dominican Republic, um, and things got a little mixed, but one side of my family is like dark and mixed and the other side is like white and whatever. <clears throat> and so me coming out of that a little darker, uh, a little more on the African side, but mm-hmm. still having family members that are white, blue eyed and whatever. And then place that kid here in America growing up first language is Spanish. People tell you who you are first. They say, yo, you're a black guy. Like Mm -hmm. you're not this or that, right? Mm -hmm. You come into a room and they already have a preconceived notion of who you are, what you're about and what you're interested in. But Mm -hmm. they didn't know anything about me. But as a kid, that kind of confused me, you know, it's Mm -hmm. like, who, okay, so who would I am? Like people say I'm black, but I come home and I just see all these random people, even Asian looking people in my family. Like I don't feel black American. I feel Latino, which is what I am Spanish. Right. Mm -hmm. I feel closer to that, but people want to label me somewhere else. So that kind of like got my wheels turning, you know, it's like, okay, so, Mm -hmm. um, it's up to me then, you know, cause I don't feel like people are judging me in a fair way, giving me, or, and and I don't blame them for it because this is how I look and people have just these prejudices to whatever. 
So, um, do you feel like there's a difference there? Um, in regards to how you were generally perceived, I know you've spoken to a good amount of travel in, in your days, the way that you're perceived in America and the assumptions people make about your ethnic background, as opposed to when you were in Germany or, or in other countries, do you feel like it's, there's a difference or is it still kind of similar? In what sense? Uh, like, so f- maybe I can provide an anecdote that's, that's helpful that I feel like something that I've spoken to or, or had spoken to me in conversation with people who are a little more on the racially ambiguous side of things that depending on where you are in the world, people kind of have a different understanding or assumption about your racial background. So in America, you know, people generally assume that you might be African-American or, or black American or whatever you want to frame that. Uh, but if you were somewhere in the Mediterranean, they might assume that you were from Tunisia or from Egypt or, you know, or just any, even though you at base look the same, it's just kind of colored by what the, the general immigrant uh, population is in a nation. I was just curious. I've never really been to, to a country like Germany. So I was curious, like, do you feel it was like, there was more of a, uh, you were more labeled or more of an outsider than, than you are here or? Uh, oh yeah, it's a huge difference. So I've been to the Middle East and they thought I was Moroccan, you know, they would look mm-hmm. at me, Hey, I think it's cause of the beard or something. So mm-hmm. definitely, it definitely does change. Like if you're in the Dominican Republic <clears throat> or you grew up in Puerto Rico in Brazil, you're kind of used to the term mulatto, you know, you can mm-hmm. have different shades of gray. It's not just black and white right. because you grew up and you see people like Brandon, people like Kevin, or people, you know, you see different type of people and you can differentiate between the shades. In America, mm-hmm. there's, and, so I'll start in Germany first. So in Germany, there's, if, if you're there and you're, and you're colored, you're probably not German, right? right? And usually you come from someplace. So they, there's extremes. It's not really shades. Uh, it's either you're white or you're black. I mean, if you're black, then you're probably African, but who really cares? You know, they just kind of mm-hmm. jumble it all together, unless you're uh, Asian, right? Indian, something like that. That's a little different. So there's less distinction. There's less nuance between, uh, and there's no gradient, you know, there's just, uh, kind of like absolutes. They treat them mm-hmm. a lot better now and they're a lot more cautious because of their history and they, and they wear that and they live with that. So they, what you would feel in Germany more than anything, I mean, there's assholes, you know, everywhere. Right. but, uh, you might feel either somebody just totally dismissing you and I want to talk to you. That's normal. Right. And if somebody hates you, okay. But there's also too nice and too serving and too willing to kind of, I don't know, interact with you or just connect with you, which tells you like, okay, they might feel a little different about me just because of my skin color too. So it's right. different, there's different ways of being judged. And in America, I just feel like, um, different to, to, to Germany. Like there's only, so, there's select people. Like if you go to South Miami, you're going to have a different experience. If you go to Kentucky, mm-hmm. it's totally different. So in America, I think it's situational who's around you and how they treat you more so like in Germany is more uniform. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. This is how it kind of gets different. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. And, and like I said, I was mostly curious because I don't have a ton of experience internationally. And I, I had my first trip outside of the country really, uh, about two years ago and spent some time in Spain and in Italy and in Greece as well. And to be fair, I don't know if I spent enough time kind of ingrained in the culture to 
establish relationships and and to kind of see what people's initial reactions to me were or what their assumptions were like do people see me and they 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 see me as an american or they maybe assume that because i have some sort of racial ambiguity that i'm i'm some sort of a more more local to the region in in some other sense or you know it's just something i'm always very curious about because Do you I, feel any I different Honestly, I don't know. I mean, I feel like I maybe I come off as a tourist, right? Because I only speak English and maybe the way that I dress or, yeah, for sure, or for sure. I feel like there's always maybe that certain degree of separation. And, and to be fair, growing up, I always, I always felt a little bit different. And I grew up generally around people that didn't look like me in a lot of, uh, at least a lot of my educational uh, formative years. But I got very used to being kind of just different and that people generally weren't sure how to label or frame me. And in a way, I always thought that was kind of fun because people so much so want to to be able to do that on the front end for everyone where it's just like, okay, this is a box I can put you in. This is how I treat you. This is how I think about you. And for me, since... In my life, I've gotten just about everything in the book in a, in a certain range as far as Samoan or Hawaiian or Egyptian or Puerto Rican or, you know, and none, of that's, none of that's right, but but generally <laughs> no one ever gets it right. And but people, they try to guess and they don't really know where to place me. And it's hard for them to make assumptions about what my experience has been in life. Uh, they hear me speak or they, you know, they see what I do, they see what I'm interested in. And they're just kind of like, ah, I don't, I don't know about this, you know? <laughs> and so it kind of keeps people on their toes to some extent. Um, so I, I, I say all that to say that like, I'm very used to people. I'm very used to being comfortable in all sorts of spaces. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's something that I kind of had to do where it was like, okay, exactly. I, I grew up, uh, somewhat in a somewhat religious family, but I went to a, I don't even know if another one exists in the world, but I mean, it probably does, but an all black, uh, Catholic church, which I've never heard of. Uh, but I, in the area I grew up was, was predominantly black. And there was this kind of small niche community that, um, yeah, we had a, a couple of white members, but essentially an all black Catholic church that also had kind of some African influence. And we had kind of a choir that was, that had that sort of influence and dress. It was, it was just these very, I grew up in a lot of different spaces where I, I just got used to being comfortable despite looking different than others. And so when I did travel, I always just kind of, I tend to always try to work from that assumption of just like, try to treat everyone as individuals as we've kind of spoken to. And I sometimes forget that that's not how others feel. And as you kind of spoke to, I think a lot of times it just depends on who it is where people might see me and they, you know, they, they frame me as black and they treat me as black. Um, and I've, I've certainly been quote unquote black enough for, you know, old guys at restaurants to, to come up to a friend that I'm sitting with and, and warn them about me, you know, like that, that Damn. kind of yeah. overt racism. Damn. But I've also been accepted in every other way imaginable by all kinds of people. And I feel like I've been lucky enough to not ever, you know, be literally hurt by anyone due to my, due to my race. And I grew up around people who didn't seem super concerned and I've got family on, on either side of things that, as you said, 
blonde hair, blue eyes, you know, dark skin uh, of all different varieties. So it's, I've always just, for me, it was always less of a factor where I was just kind of used to that not being something that mattered very much. But I understand that a lot of people don't, don't necessarily have that framing or that advantage they grow up with where race is something that is kind of uh, an afterthought. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, we're seeing the rise in uh, popul- populism, right? nationalism. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a group of people that feel uh, a lot of change coming and they're scared. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are people that are not like me and you that grew up in a world where we had to tell ourselves who we were because the world was going to choose incorrectly otherwise. Mm-hmm. But now the world is expelling them from their little bubble, some people. Um, right. And it, w- w- when you have, s- that's how I see kind of like the political climate. I mean, obviously, right? I mean, not, we don't have to get too much into politics, but when people start to see change coming and strangers kind of enter their groups that weren't there before, it's uncomfortable. You okay. don't really want them there. Mm-hmm. You don't know who that guy's going to do or what that girl's going to do. Mm-hmm. And so the natural inclination is to stick together. People who look alike, tribalism. Because mm-hmm. it's worked in the past for hundreds of centuries before. Yeah. And they uh, consolidate their power and try to make mm-hmm. change. And going now, bring that uh, full circle to your first comment about uh, conversation and listening. They are not going to listen because they're not mm-hmm. interested in what the other side has to say. Physically, they look different and, and they're just strangers. It's something new. People are always scared of change. Mm-hmm. Um, and so combine that what we're talking about, the inexperience of being able to shapeshift and kind of take every individual as an individual. Mm-hmm. And then the inability to listen first uh, is what right. drives a greater and greater, deeper divide. Like as the world becomes more globalized and more mixed, which is inevitable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's one of those things that obviously at a time was very valuable whether you're, you're talking about tribalism or even nationalism as it something worked. that yeah. is a, a relatively recent development yeah. that's kind of an incredible feat of humanity that individuals could take, you know, hundreds of thousands of millions of other people and feel like they were their, their brothers or their sisters or their people and, and feel like they were united in something that large where humans were kind of meant to just just feel that way about their tribes, maybe a couple hundred people. Exactly. Um, and you expand that. And it, and we're not even done. Um, like I was, we were briefly, uh, we covered it in our talk in the forest. It, the internet just came in. Like mm-hmm. we are the transition generation. We are the guinea pigs. Like when I was a kid, um, if I wanted to go hang out with my friend, I'd have to go drive my bike. I got to ride my bike down the street and I knock mm-hmm. on his door. Hey, can, can John play? You know, uh, that will never happen again. Mm-hmm. Never. I mean, think about that. And that's just in my lifetime. And I'm a baby, you know, <laughs> like the, the change is coming so fast, so rapidly. People are, are not getting enough time to adjust properly. And that's we're seeing some of the repercussions, some of the lashback. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, nobody necessarily really signed up for it. It just kind of happened. And it's not it's not an objectively bad or good thing. It's just a, a new technology, a new aspect of, of our lives now that that clearly our hardware has not caught up to by any stretch. And our software just continues to be updated, you know, quicker and quicker and, and expanding in these kind of 
unbelievable ways, but our hardware is still what it is. Exactly. And that's going to take millions of years, you know, from a, if we're just talking from an evolutionary perspective. So we're still dealing with all these, these drives and urges that aren't, that don't match up with the way that the world is progressing technologically. So it's, it's incredibly challenging and even something that a hundred years ago was something that was overwhelmingly a positive thing. And it was kind of amazing that humans could feel just to kind of jump back to what I was saying about nationalism. Now it's clearly something that's becoming very harmful and because people aren't able to take that next step and expand it to all people to consider all humans or even just all living conscious beings on this planet as we're, we're in this together. We're made from the same atoms where we're, we all have sure a little bit abstract, but common goals. And well, I think we can get there, but well, Brandon, that's scary. Oh, I don't <laughs> want to talk to the Brown man from around the corner. I don't know what he does. It's a scary thing. Nobody wants to do it. They don't want to be the to sacrifice, you know, mm -hmm. leaders sacrifice first and there's not enough leaders right now. And yeah. I think that really goes to, uh, and now this is something I've been realizing more and more as I talk to more and more people, we don't have the same facts, which is oh, very yeah. odd. And that's where it starts though, because Absolutely. E yeah, even coming into conversation, before you even come into a conversation with somebody, it's likely that what they think is fact is whatever got liked most on Reddit. Yeah. It's likely, it's that's likely crazy. that what they think is fact is what was trending on Twitter that all their friends agreed to. That's mm -hmm. what, that, that's true now. 4,000 right. likes. That's true now. That's a fact. Yeah. That's, that's I mean, how people treat this. They, cause they don't, the internet's so new and people that are not progressive enough or ready to change fast that are mm -hmm. more, uh, individual, uh, they don't want to, to go there. That's uncomfortable for them. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of those things that most people are aware of in a in a general sense, but the the true depth of it maybe isn't it doesn't hit home quite as much. But an interesting example I was given a few months ago from a uh, from a friend from some sort of a a source. Maybe it was another podcast I was listening to, but that. I think people have a, a broad understanding that, okay, when you go on Facebook, you go on Twitter, it's not the same. You know, if, if you and your friend sat down and pulled up your Twitter feeds next to each other, you'd have different things trending. It's not some sort of objective source of information. And of course, that is incredibly dangerous in and of itself. But I think when you start to push it further and further into the abstract, where you look at something like Google, where you're like, you assume, okay, when I search how to tie my shoes, that it's going to be the same results for everyone who searches that. And it's not even close. It's it's a different set of experiences. So when we're just trying to figure out, let's just say we disagree on, um, let's just say climate change, let's throw that one out there. And when we hop on our uh, laptops and say, okay, what is climate change? Or is climate change real? Our results are going to be different. And that is a just a massive problem that if we don't take the time to look beyond a simple google search which most people never do in regards to anything anymore like anything. that's that's the be all end all you know why because there's too much they're going to mm -hmm. be too late for the next update they're already late they're reading this page but they're already thinking about the next thing that they're going to google so there's not enough time to really understand what's going on in here because the headlines the turnover is too quick right yeah. And I mean, I think there's resources out there. I'm forgetting the name off the top of my head of one I've heard of recently, but 
it's a, it's an Apple website of sorts where you can basically go on and it'll show how each side of the political spectrum is covering each story. So it'll give you this kind of balanced perspective of like, okay, this is what the right is not covering, or this is what the right doesn't want to talk about. This is what the left is really pushing. And, you know, you get these kind of the same actual events and stories, but you're getting essentially, okay, this is what people who have this media landscape are, are getting. And it at least allows you to have that pullback and be like, okay, there's, there's something going on here and it's probably somewhere in the middle of, exactly. of these two you need to reporting narratives. Um, but yeah, I mean, and even just to push it one step further, if you even look at something like Wikipedia, which is where the the uh, example ultimately goes, like just imagine if you go on Wikipedia for, let's just say we look up, I don't know, Tom Cruise, and we have different Wikipedia pages for Tom Cruise based on our media appetites and what I didn't we, know that. No, no, I, I, that's not the case. Oh, what you're saying is an but, example of what's happening. But yeah. if it's not, we're not that far from that. Mm. It is that way with Google, but with something like Wikipedia, where that has kind of become this open source space to get, you know, base research on anything, that if we got to a point where even things like that were catered, you know, bias catered to the individual, it's how could we attempt to have a conversation like this if we can't even when we try to do our research, when we try to do our diligence and not just like act emotionally that we are just getting different things. And so we're coming to a debate and just shouting at each other. Like you, you're just wrong. These are my facts. These are your facts. Or even from a reacher's perspective, which is maybe an interesting thing to hear you speak to as someone who, who kind of has some exposure to that landscape where you can, you can be like, well, I'm going to cite my studies here and you're going to cite your studies here that were, you know, funded with this motive. And so it's, it's not even like it's easy to be able to just cite research anymore as that can be like the basis of uh, a decent argument as it always could be in the past. Now it's like, you can doubt each other's studies based on what sort of political machinations could have been going on behind the scenes to make them happen. And I would argue that it's not easy for the common per- person to cite good research. But if you are a learned, I don't want to say a learned person, but if you if you do try and pull from pools that are credible, meaning, well, they're pull, they're getting their numbers from some credible space. It's not really that hard, but it's hard for the. Um, like the lay person, even me and you, uh, just clicking around, zooming around to distinguish from mm-hmm. in that perspective right there, what's fact and what's not, because uh, we don't want to go to that extra step and and find out. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just tr- just straight uh, laziness. But I think it's just, I like it, like we were talking about people. We evolved in a tribal sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have our right now. This is our campfire. This is us huddled over the campfire, chit chatting, talking about world events. Uh, and for some strange reason, thousands of people can be listening to us, uh, without being in our conversation. We're not used to that. I mean, mm-hmm. we have hundreds of years where it's just me and Brandon and nobody can argue <laughs> whatever we agree upon. That's facts. Right. There's not thousands of people that are listening to us and they're going to be judging us. That mm-hmm. changes fast. And so most people can't, they're not, uh, equipped or don't have the energy. Don't put the energy to ask themselves, okay, this is what I saw on the internet. Am I wrong? Mm-hmm. Can this be wrong? Right. You know, and then go look for it mm-hmm. with an open mind to what the reality might be before you have an opinion. But people have a tendency to have an opinion. So this is what I've noticed. 
people have passive energy mm-hmm. when researching, but yeah. high energy in opinion. And mm-hmm. that doesn't connect. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think you said something interesting. I mean, even just kind of bringing up the open-mindedness aspect of things that I feel like it's it's so important that that is there if if you want to get anywhere in a conversation. Because I think I think people have a certain base um, degree of open-mindedness that sometimes is a little bit discredited. That I think a lot of what is often described as, I guess to, to jump back to what we were talking about previously in regards to race, that I think there's a lot of quote-unquote racism that is mostly just ignorance right? That it's, it's lack of exposure. It's not, it's that you don't know anybody like that. And you've insulated yourself out of fear or out of uncomfortability from that sort of environment or from that sort of relationship. But I think most people, and of course there's truly, you know, bitterly and despicably racist people in this world and in every country, but I think most people, if they had just more exposure, especially at a young age to a diverse group of people, they would realize that we're mostly the same and that skin color is not a reason to treat someone differently. But for a lot of reasons, we still often find ourselves more and more insulated from other groups of people. And so I think that most people are open-minded enough that if put in the right environments and circumstances, that they could come together. But yep. maybe that's me being a little optimistic. I don't know. But I'm optimistic that... just like you. And that's why I say that the fault is not in the person. Like kids don't grow up hating people just like that. I mean, mm-hmm. you, you kind of get taught and conditioned. All right, this is okay. This is not okay, depending on what your parents say and your family does. Um, so when you grow up like that, uh, you have, you know, you're, predis- you're, you're kind of, you're prepared to make certain decisions even when that comes to online and mm-hmm. you're not really prepared for somebody to tell you that, okay, everything you know is, is false. You're right? You're going to feel like an idiot. Nobody wants to admit that. So it's harder to, to your point. I'm, I'm just as optimistic as you, in fact, even more optimistic. I think that if they were exposed, if, that's why I went to places like Germany. Mm-hmm. I was like, I'm going to go where maybe I shouldn't go. Or maybe it wouldn't be normal to go because I want to see what's going on on that side. And that's, and that's what I mean, but that's what it takes. Mm-hmm. Nobody, not a lot of people are like me. Then I'm just going to get up and go as a black kid coming out of high school and just go to a different country just to see like, okay, what do they think? They're mm-hmm. not going to come to my side. Uh, it, that's scary. That's uncomfortable. That's new. They're already right. used to the circle, you know? And plus like people, it, it's a whole picture too, because, um, they come home, they got bills, they got kids, you know, they, they just have time for the headlines. They're not mm-hmm. going to, they don't want to go read deep. Um, and they're already pissed that they're uh, reversing, you know, reverse mortgage that they just got fired because of COVID. Right. Yeah. So they're going to go online looking to feel good, looking for affirmation, not challenge. Mm-hmm. They're not going to go online and want to be challenged again. People want to stay in their comfort zones. But then there's crazy motherfuckers like me that, you know, every time I fall in my comfort zone, I'm like, damn, I got to get the fuck up out of here. You know? <laughs> yeah. 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 And, it's a, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty interesting framing. I think a lot of people, it, it, it sounds a little bit counterintuitive to say exactly. when I'm outside of my comfort, like I need to be outside of my comfort zone and when I'm, I'm too comfortable, I'm uncomfortable, but it, you're, you're creating more blind spots for yourself the more that you 
settle into wherever you are. And of course, it's not like you you need to be in a constant state of stress or anxiety to progress, but on some level, it's just so easy to get set in a certain way of thinking about something where even someone like me who where I I really do try to make an effort to consume a balanced amount of content from you know what uh, from all sorts of perspectives and I, I I have a certain awareness of the the faults in a lot of the systems that often distract us and delude us but at the same time I still it's so easy for me to just ease into certain content sources where I'm like this is a good source of content or like this is someone I can trust or listen to. And then I end up kind of getting nailed down on that and parroting that and getting too comfortable with that perspective. And it can be so hard on a day-to-day basis to just keep pushing yourself outside of that, um, outside of even the balanced perspectives, right? Like, yeah. yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're right. You Even in your attempt to stay balanced, you're going to be unbalanced because that's the nature mm-hmm. of life, right? I mean, the way I, the way I always see life, the reason I don't stay in my comfort zone, and you're right, it's not easy. You wake up every day. Why would you want to be uncomfortable? And that, and I want to clarify too, because you make a good point, Brennan. It's not, we're not saying, or I'm not saying anyway, to live in a constant state of stress and anxiety. Actually, it's the opposite. Mm-hmm. When you stay in your comfort zone and then your values and, and your morale gets challenged, that's where the anxiety comes from. And then you're not confident enough to talk to the people about it because you're not sure if it's exactly the right answer. So you're thinking, you're trying to outthink yourself. You're trying to see, okay, I can solve this here on my own uh, by myself. So this is how I kind of approach it. Uh, What I mean by stay out of your comfort zone, it's not, hey, you're comfortable. You know, you should be anxious. You should be stressed. You should be doing something right now. What you should be saying is, okay, I kind of get the gist of this. I might still be wrong. I might not have all the answers still. I agree with everything that's, that's happening here. Or I disagree with everything that's happening here. But I might need uh, something else to mm-hmm. show me uh, another way. You know, right. I'm constantly looking for another perspective. And that actually is it, like meditation. When mm-hmm. when you're meditating, and I've been practicing meditation for just a little while now. Um, I'm extremely new, but it's been a big help. Mm-hmm. It disconnects you from the thoughts in your mind. It shows you that you are more than the thoughts in your mind because the mm-hmm. brain is firing around around different thoughts, different crazy shit. Like you see, you know, a guy or a girl, and you're like, oh, what if he falls off the cliff and then snaps his neck? Like, and mm-hmm. you think to yourself, oh, I'm a horrible person. I'm right. so shitty. Like, why would I ever exactly. think that? But meditation takes you a step back and it says, hey, what's really happening is uh, you got to sit back and you imagine cars on a road and they're passing by. These are your thoughts. They're passing by. Mm-hmm. And the more cars that's happening, the more anxious you get and the more you want to get up off the side of the road and, and try to stop the cars from happening. Too many thoughts. Mm-hmm. When the whole point of the exercise was just to observe the cars to begin with. No effort. Right. Mm-hmm. And it allows you to, it, for me, that's how I live my life. I'm separated. I, I try to remind myself that I am not my thoughts. Mm-hmm. And I don't get comfortable with that, right? And so uh, in that, it opens up. It opens up the world, gives you new perspective. Uh, it always has you asking yourself, man, I might be wrong. I need extra information. And it gives you a sense of calm and not knowing because you're mm-hmm. never going to know. Right. Yeah. I mean, you're you're 100% preaching to the choir here. And that's yeah. maybe more so than anything, the basis of this project and, and how I came to it and the general thesis of it is just that we get so caught up on a day-to-day basis 
identifying with so many different things that ultimately harm us, whether that be our thoughts or our outputs or anything on that spectrum that we we have a thought, like you said, and we're like, oh shit, I'm I'm a terrible person for having that come up when when you take the time and space to have a, a slightly different uh, orientation to that thought, you realize there was nothing you could have done. That thought just came up. And sure, w- what you do in regards to that thought is significant, but these thoughts, just like the sounds that you hear in the room or the the pain that you have in your foot, they just arise, just like everything else that you're experiencing And there's a response that's valuable, but at the end of the day, if you spend your life identifying with every single thought that comes up, every single emotion that comes up and identifying with it and and having that entangled with your identity and how you think about yourself and others, that's incredibly painful because we are, as I spoke to earlier, our hardware is not there. We're not really meant to be where we are as a society and it's difficult to be a person. It's difficult to be a human, to live in this strange and maladapted world. And so when we have all these things that arise within us and we assume that it's unique and individual to us and that we're, we should somehow judge ourselves for these feelings, that's, that's a dead end until the end of time. Um, so to just have a little bit of pullback, even if it's a couple times a day in moments where you can you can just observe, as you said, to to watch the waves pass by and understand that that's that's not necessarily you. there's there's no fixed permanent you. it's it's a set of experiences that's always that's always evolving. and you you don't have to always and that's that's our default that's how we operate on a day-to-day basis and without that pullback we're always we're thinking without knowing that we're thinking we're identifying without knowing that we're identifying and even someone who for the better part of the past five years of my life has has had a practice every single day it's days go by where it never crosses my mind and that's that's frustrating it's hard not to even judge myself for that because it's like you spend so much time trying to do better on this front but i could live a whole day just kind of in that total identification you know kind of in that uh state of my default mode network but it can be so valuable in 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 moments of adversity or moments of challenge to be able to say it's it's always an option to sit back and observe for a moment and to to be an observer of experience and and to realize that even your own feelings emotions pain um the your senses these are all just other things to observe as well as the quote-unquote external world um i know i just kind of picked up a little bit of a rant there because like i said you're nope. you're speaking my language but um, i agree and um i think the whole point is too for you know everybody listening and like i said before in our first conversation if you are struggling mentally and things are hard for yourself you're not gonna beat the monkey by with another monkey right you're not gonna mm-hmm. outthink your brain you're not gonna solve right. any any problems by thinking more mm-hmm. you know try the opposite think less hang back and ask for help because you're not gonna solve all the problems we all need help that's how we're wired that's how we are mm-hmm. but what i wanted to say too is like the uh, the whole point of what we're saying is that you will fail, right? Mm-hmm. You will, like, Brandon, you just said it. I practice it all the time, and I try to bring an intention 
to have mm-hmm. that feeling in my life. But I have days where I'm just a shithead all day, right? And you're just mm-hmm. like, oh, I'm a piece of shit all day and stuff like that. doesn't mean you're a failure. It just means today you're weak, but tomorrow you the, ri- the sun will rise again and it's a new day. Mm-hmm. And you have another opportunity to make yourself better. The point is that you will fail. But also right. the point is that you must get up every single time. You must have the patience and to forgive yourself every time mm-hmm. and say, oh, I'm not perfect. Um, just human, just like everybody else. Well, here I go again. I'll try it again. That's the attitude. Right. That's the attitude of a winner. Like there's people that, and I've seen it all the time. They have this story for themselves. Oh, I'm a, like, I'm doing pretty good in my trade and stuff like that. So I can see how it happens. But, oh, I'm a finance guy and I'm making a lot of money and or an engineer and they're working for Tesla and they hate their life. They are miserable. They're working, mm-hmm. you know, eight to eight and they're never with their families. They're not on holidays. They're always working. Uh, but they get to say they work as an engineer at Tesla and stuff like that. Mm-hmm sometimes or i found that if you have you seen headspace uh guy for meditation on netflix uh no i haven't i've i mean i'm familiar with its existence and i've i've used the app itself before but i haven't actually consumed that that piece itself you should check it out it's pretty good and uh i mean it it has helped me a lot but in there that he talks about that the finance guy that comes in and this finance guy has told himself his whole life, like, I'm a finance guy. This is what I do. But he was miserable for years and years, right? Mm-hmm. And he talks to this guy and he's a monk and stuff. And then it, and it turns out that when he asks him, hey, what do you really want to do in life? Like, what is it that you, that you want to do? And he's like, I want to be a gardener. It has mm-hmm. nothing to do with finance. It has nothing to do right. with making money. And he ignored that feeling because of that. It doesn't fit his, the story that he told himself, the storyline that he wrote for himself when he was 21. Mm-hmm. It doesn't fit that money-making mentality that he has. So he right. just ignored it. But, you know, it. I, I think more people should do stuff like that. Just try random things. Get out of your comfort zone. You don't know what you're not good at. You don't know what you're good at. You don't know what you might like. If you're not happy mm-hmm. where you are now, uh, the only other the only option that you have is to go out, something, do something, fail at it as much as you can, and then mm-hmm. you, you understand yourself a lot more, and you're going to know what you want. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I guess to just bring it, bring it full circle, I think it's the, the big reason why I I started this whole thing was because I feel like this framing and allowing people to detach a little bit from their sense of identity and whatever stories they've been telling themselves about themselves and all these hangups we tend to have that are derived from identifying with our thoughts or our our immutable qualities or whatever we've been told um, that just allowing a little bit more distance from those things might allow people to share themselves in a more, in a more genuine way. And of course, right now it's, it's a limited number of guests and I'd certainly like for this project to be something that could have a broader reach or just promote conversation in general in which people can kind of go into conversations and just give people the benefit of the doubt and allow them to interact as though all these other kind of surface things don't matter. And of course they, they tell us things and they, they color the way that we think about things on a day-to-day basis, but just pushing people to recognize that whether it's what, how you're perceived by the world or how you think about yourself internally, none of that's even necessarily true. None of it's necessarily who you are in a fixed sense and that people can get so caught up with feeling like you know they're they're a shithead or they're they're not worthy or they're not capable or they're an imposter if you will but 
that at the end of the day, it's that's just another story that, that you're telling yourself. That's just like the story that everybody else is trying to tell you about who you are and who you should be. Um, so I, you know, hopefully that's that's something that that can grow over time, like I said, and and maybe maybe an extension of this project can can be something where where others can have broader conversations with with more people that that just kind of have that framing in mind to even be this sort of meditative experience, if you will, where you can kind of just observe or be part of something without always latching on to one of those cars to to come back to the metaphor that, that you presented earlier. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think more, uh, needs to be more people like you to tell everybody, Hey, you don't have it figured out. You probably won't never figure it out, but that's okay (laughs) because that's the whole point. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah, I mean that's that's life, and yeah. that's kind of the fun part, at exactly. least to me. That yeah, that there is no, there's no fixed point at which you you're there. Yeah. It's just there's always things to figure out. There's always problems to solve. There's always growth to to be had, yep. and on a day to day basis, that's definitely something that that keeps me going. And and even when I have those bad days that I kind of spoke to, or I guess. I kind of put air quotes that people can't see on bad, but that it's, it's a journey. And even those days when you don't reach your goals or you don't do the things you set out to do, that's just another opportunity to be able to improve on another front or just recognize another aspect of yourself. It doesn't even always have to be about progress. It's just awareness. More, more awareness is, is always a good thing. And so even if it's not like you you have this tangible measure in which you're improving, it's if you're learning something about yourself, if you're having a better understanding of the way that your brain operates and what it's like to be you, that's improving. the quality of your mind is, is the quality of the life. And as you were speaking to, you can, you can work for Tesla. You can, you can reach the moon. You can do whatever, but whatever's going on internally on a moment to moment basis is, is what it comes down to as far as how much you, you suffer or enjoy your life. So yeah. Cause then otherwise, what the fuck are you doing? Like why work for Tesla and why be an engineer and have all these fancy titles and you know, a hundred K salary. If you hate your life and you're always upset and you're always complaining and you feel like the world owes you something because it doesn't and nobody cares about mm-hmm. the way you feel. It's just how the world works. Um, mm-hmm. I think, I mean, you know, just people's uh, priorities might be a little messed up sometimes. And I don't know anything. Uh, I'm not a professional. You know, I'm just Kevin. I make mistakes too. I'm trying to do the best I can. But I'm echoing the giants that were ahead of me or what works for them. And I'm trying mm-hmm. to imitate that. And I'm always trying to share that with as many people as I can. Mm-hmm. And what I hear from them is, you know, the most important thing you can do is just uh, have a, a, a mission for yourself, a, a goal, something that you want to do that's bigger than just money or a job or a title. Like, what is it that your life is about? Because mm-hmm. that's what really is going to bring happiness. Success within that context is happiness. Mm-hmm. But just success by itself is not happiness. But mm-hmm. People don't understand that. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's it's something we actually kind of touched on previously in our uh i guess our now infamous uh forest <laughs> conversation as as we put it but um i'm always fascinated especially when i talk to people that that seem to be pretty driven as as you are and seem to be doing pretty well for themselves by conventional measures um seem to have a certain vitality in life and 
seem to be enjoying things, but also have a certain awareness of the downsides of, of ego and, and identifying with thought and who, who strive to be more self-aware and more mindful that is there, are there any particular tools or even just ways of thinking about this kind of dichotomy between motivation and uh, I guess ego maintenance, if you will, that you, you find to be helpful that you can still kind of keep yourself in check and, and stay mindful and prioritize your well-being while also progressing towards the things that you want to do and see yourself so be a part of in life. Mm-hmm. So I do have a bag of tools that I've acquired from other people that know and do way better than I do. And and I'm coming slowly to realize that uh, my success is going to be closely tied to how well I can manage my own expectations and my emotions. So mm-hmm. with that being said, med- uh, meditation has to be uh, number one, even more than grinding and more than being successful and, and winning. Mm-hmm. Uh, because if I lose myself, then I lose the race, right? And then the second one is uh, Ray Dalio's Principles for life or something like that or something like that Uh, you should look it up it's probably he does one on how the economy works and anybody out there that's listening he does one ray dalio he owns uh bridgewater he is the manager of bridgewater the biggest uh hedge fund in in america so he manages the biggest chunk of money Mm -hmm. and um he has an interesting life too when he first he started it you know in a uh, i think a two-bedroom apartment in new york uh the hedge fund in the 70s and he was uh, at some point claiming that the market was going to crash and he and, and keep him, this guy manages uh at that time millions and millions of dollars of other people's money mm-hmm. so he was making moves on how he thought the market was going to crash and he had he actually ended up being completely wrong right i mean he was wrong he lost everything for his clients he had to let go of everybody he had access oh, wow. he had access for his dad the guy that was managing a million millions and millions of dollars for other people's money had access dad for a thousand dollars to help pay for rent that month mm-hmm. so he couldn't have been more wrong but that's the person that I trust and I look to to find my motivation and how I should think about life. And he makes a lot of videos. Uh, he has free content on LinkedIn, Ray Dalio. If you just okay. type in Ray Dalio on YouTube, you, uh, there's principles to life or principles to success. That's the best one. Mm-hmm. But he also explains how the economy works. In the principles to life, he explains how uh, progress is not how we think about it conventionally, right? When you start making progress, when you have a mission, you say, oh, I want to be financially free. I want to be a trader. I want to be an investor. When you start off, people think, okay, I'm going to learn. I'm going to start off. I'm going to gradually get better. Mm-hmm. But usually things get worse when you start off. And um, so little nuances like that, knowing, okay, what risk do I have to look out for? What risk risk in life am I not seeing? Because there, mm-hmm. there's a lot. There's probably more that you're not seeing than you're seeing. Right. And how can I mitigate those risks that I'm not seeing right now? Mm-hmm. Because there will be pitfalls and you will fail many, many times along the road. Mm-hmm. Uh, more often than not uh usually how it happens is it's way harder than you think it takes longer than you think but if you're successful it's way more successful than you thought mm. um so what ray dalio's principles to life uh plus meditation plus drive and curiosity mm-hmm. um it's how i've been able to kind of manage the waters so mm-hmm. not leaning on my own expertise but outsourcing it yeah yeah, that's a that's an important note. I'll definitely link some of his content in the show notes. I'm not familiar with it, but I'll definitely look into it and then make sure the audience can can get easy access to that because it sounds it definitely sounds valuable. Yeah, but, uh, New York Times number one bestseller. He doesn't charge for it. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's 
that's a wonderful resource. You can't, yeah. <laughs> you can't miss that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I did want to hone in a little bit on, on the final note that you made, because I know we've kind of talked about some of these other things, but just having a, an overall perspective of curiosity in life and how, how that can be something that a never allows your ego to be too inflated as long as you stay curious, because if you stay curious, you're going to get, you know, (laughs) you're going to fall. A snake's going to bite you. Metaphorically speaking, if you, if you continue, I guess, as you kind of spoke to before already, being curious forces you out of your comfort zone regularly. And as long as you maintain a a sense of, of curiosity in life, you're going to end up in situations that, that are outside of, of what you, have previously experienced and what your your area of expertise is and as long as you continue to push for that in whatever space that may be you're going to fail and you're going to struggle and you're going to make mistakes and i think as long as you do that you're going to of course continue to grow but you're also just never going to be you're never going to get to a point of ego that is that is truly limiting because you think too much of yourself and what you're capable of in which people i feel like people often get there in situations where they sure it's it's impressive to become incredibly good at one thing but if you if you always kind of stay in that bubble it can be very easy to talk yourself into thinking that you're special or that you you have something that that others shouldn't or or don't have and it it definitely, at least to me, stood out as a part of that equation that that sometimes I I forget about, even though I definitely try to be a curious person. That 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 can be a an interesting an interesting post-it note to to keep keep tabs on yep. as far as just balancing the motivation and, and ego side of life. Definitely key is is definitely curiosity and stay curious, my friends. Right? If I'm allowed to steal from Dosakis, but <laughs> um, from from our infamous conversation in the forest, I do remember that uh, our opinion, opinions might have diverged a little bit on the topic of ego because mm-hmm. I uh, I see ego, uh, I use ego a lot, and I think ego mm-hmm. is actually uh, important. Very healthy ego is important to me personally. How I look at life, uh, and I explain it simply. You have to have a self-confidence to tell yourself, I can do this. Mm-hmm. It's not a it's not an ego that says you're better than everybody else, but you're not less either. Mm-hmm. It's not an ego that says you can't fail, you deserve to win, but you won't let yourself fail. It's that type of ego. It's the ego mm-hmm. that tells yourself whatever you could put your mind to, you don't ask yourself how hard is it, but you ask yourself, what do I need to do? That puts mm-hmm. you on top of a lot of people. I mean, it's a and then I think what came up in conversation with us is um, LeBron James. He is, you know, the, obviously right. the, the best basketball player in the planet right now that's playing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't think anybody will argue that one. But in high school, he already knew he was going to be that. What he is today, he knew that back then. And that's mm-hmm. what it takes to that's what it takes to be a person like LeBron. It's somebody that has that constitution, somebody that has uh, that resolve, that fortitude that says, hey, I'm LeBron James. I want to be the best in the world. But not enough, not enough, hey, everybody else is lesser than me. But in a, I'm going to outwork everybody. I'm going to just do more than them. And the, the, and how do I know he felt that way about himself? Because before he got drafted, and I think it was in high school, he tattooed Chosen One across his back. 
that mm-hmm. strikes people the wrong way. I understand why why, uh, why it would be. I mean, mm-hmm. if you're going to play anything against anybody, let's say a chess player, and across their neck it says chosen one, I mean, yeah, you know, right. this guy's a douchebag. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, everybody's going to go target this guy. Mm-hmm. But people can take that and be a douche. But the people that can do that have that ego, that belief in themselves. They know. They know. Mm-hmm. I will persevere. I, I will make this happen. But have a mm-hmm. humble uh, approach to life that says, I know that I know I don't know everything, but I'm willing mm-hmm. to fail more than everybody else. And that's why I know I'm going to make it. That's the ego that I use. So um, it's very nuanced mm-hmm. in a way. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you brought it up because it, it was definitely a, a significant point of of divergence in our in our conversation. And I'm, I generally am excited by so, those sorts of things. I mean, of course, yeah, it's, it's nice to have a conversation that where there's a lot of alignment and there's a lot of mutual interest, but I think it often the most value is found when you, when you can find a place in which you disagree with with someone and, but you have enough established common ground that you can kind of really speak to your perspective and broaden the other person. So I'm glad you brought it up. And I think it, it is a, an important clarification that it's, I by no means think that ego is a fundamentally bad thing. I don't know if I think that anything is necessarily fundamentally bad and it's, it's just another tool and it can be used. It can be sharpened. It can be refined. And, and it's, I don't mean to cut you off. I don't mean to cut you off. I'll let you finish. Mm-hmm. But the tool that I mostly attach it to is uh, the training from Mike Tyson, Costamato. Have mm-hmm. you heard about Costamato? Yeah. He, yeah. Yeah, he, he explains fear in this way, and this is how I feel about uh, ego. Fear is like a fire, right? It can, mm-hmm. it can burn your house down or it can cook your dinner. Uh, it's right. all about control. Mm-hmm. And so that's how, I, that, that's how I explain ego. So to, to your point, I mean, it's a tool to be used. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I feel that way about, about most things. And I think that it's, granted, it's, it's a broad term, and I think people interpret it in, in lots of different ways. And I maybe even have a different understanding or framing of it than the traditional sense of ego, but that's, I guess, neither here nor there. But the point being that I think an individual, of course, has to have a certain amount of self-belief and self-worth to get anywhere. And as long as it's not at the expense of others, as you kind of spoke to, it's not that I'm at base more valuable than anyone else, but that we all have this sense of value and uh, capacity that that should be celebrated and should be leaned into and also kind of keeping the ego grounded in in what you also do and, and put yourself in front of in life so I think there's a lot of value in as I've spoken to in previous episodes with other people to putting yourself in in difficult situations and challenging yourself in safe environments and and setting tangible, attainable goals that are outside of your comfort zone so you can say you can look back and say look what i've done like i i got through that i i made it through i i set that goal and i reached it and that is an easy way to just continually make sure that you do believe in yourself in a 
in at least a functional way so that it's you never get too detached from what you've actually done and it's not just like you have this overinflated sense of like no i'm just special i'm just amazing yeah and which is Uh, it's hard it's it's human uh it would be very human to follow a trap into that trap right i mean mm -hmm. it's it's what it was is what would happen i mean that's what separates you know the the good version ego versus the bad one i mean it has to be controlled you use it to Mm -hmm. to boost you as a fuel but at some mm-hmm. point, you have to throttle it down and, and know, know when to throttle it up and down, right? Right. Yeah, and to jump back to a, a point you made a, a while back about expectation, I feel like it's because I don't want people to misunderstand what I'm saying about uh, looking back and, and being too tied to looking back because I try not to do that. But giving yourself a little bit of credit for being where you are, even if it's not where you think you should be or where others around you appear to be, but saying, you know, if you've been through something challenging in a, in a real sense, the fact that you're here, the fact that you didn't break is an accomplishment. And sure, maybe you're not exactly where you'd like to be or you didn't in your mind handle it perfectly. But to just say you you did what you needed to do to get through that traumatic experience or that adversity, you're here and you you didn't give up on this whole plane of existence. And that is something that I feel like people often don't give themselves credit for, even when it's they don't have a lot of pride or they don't feel great about how they got to a certain place. The fact that you're here is something that I think all people who are presently here can can draw on and say even if they don't feel like they have a ton of accomplishments or you know kind of surface level achievements the fact that you you made it to this point and you're you're here and you're open and you're looking forward is something that i think is is often an easy reminder to just to look back on and and to derive some sense of of value and worth from yeah, for sure. And to those people too, I would add, I, I agree with everything you just said. And to those people too, I would add, uh, for me, I can only speak personally, I derive my sense of happiness and joy and how I feel about myself from myself first. Uh, when you have, when you judge yourself based on expectations of what you know other people are doing, what other people might say, you'll never be uh, really happy. So mm-hmm. if you're if you're doing things and when you're done, you're mm-hmm. not happy or you oh um, i could have done better or i could have done this um you might be measuring yourself you might be looking to the exterior uh when you evaluate yourself when you really should be evaluating yourself for yourself uh, mm-hmm. uh so the, that way uh, nobody can shake you nobody can break you uh whatever you did uh you did it and you should be really proud like to your point people they do things they don't realize how special really they are i mean everybody mm-hmm. You're not gonna. You don't have to be a celebrity uh, to to have people that love you and that admire you and that look at you like a celebrity. Right. You don't have to be a millionaire to be rich. You can be rich off love or rich off opportunity or rich off happiness. Um, mm-hmm. There's different flavors on how to get there. But people look at social media. I think that's how they came up. They look at social media, and they know the expectations that people have on them. That influences the expectations that they have for themselves. But it's outsourced. Mm-hmm. Uh, you look on social media uh, and, and you think, okay, a regular life isn't enough anymore. I got to be a YouTube person. I'm going to be a, make a podcast so I can be famous and make a million dollars. And if that doesn't mm-hmm. happen, then I'm a piece of shit. And then they do it for a month. Obviously, it doesn't work out. And then they're a piece of shit, right? 
my whole point is you're already special. You already have everything you need to be as successful as you possibly can imagine in your own way. Uh, mm -hmm. That goes back to selecting what you want to do for your life. What would make you happy? And that could be being the best dad I can possibly be. That can be being the best brother that I can be, being a better son, uh, being there for my grandparents. Uh, mm -hmm. Everybody's story is different. Uh, and everybody's a hero in their own story. But people like to look at that next story and say, wow, that's a bigger hero. I'm a piece of shit. When maybe that's not true. Maybe that's just what they're displaying. You don't know. It might be complicated. You know, they might be an asshole. Everybody might hate them. Mm -hmm. Um and, and so it, it comes from, it comes from within, like, you know, you, you got to do what you want to do in life. You, you can't do what other people expect you to do because that doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it definitely, a, a lot of value in what you just said. And just to kind of jump back to what you mentioned about what makes individuals happy and also this kind of broad mention of people being the heroes of their own stories and in crafting that narrative in a way that serves them. And exactly. you've also just kind of spoken to, you seem to have a pretty solid sense of, of who you are and in the sort of life that you want to live. But I am curious if, if, if money were no object or there was no limitations, I'm curious what you'd be doing with your life or if there's anything, if you have any broad, vision of of what your life will look like in the broadest sense and in the simplest terms a traveling storyteller because uh as i shared with you before my perspective on life is uh, it's kind of unique i mean as only i would make it right mm -hmm. uh, the way i look at it is uh me and you brennan we're sharing uh, a select time in human history but in history in general we're mm -hmm. sharing this timeline this little not even a piece like a, a infinitesimal little point Mm -hmm. in time together right now as we're riding through the space-time continuum or whatever you want to call it right. so i look at life through that lens why am i born now i ask those questions to myself what would i do now how about if i was born 100 years ago i would be a slave mm -hmm. you'll probably be a slave we wouldn't be here right now we'll be working mm -hmm. on a plantation 200 years from that we'll probably be in a forest somewhere doing some crazy thing you know <laughs> 100 years from now who knows what we would be doing you know mm -hmm. nobody knows but we're born now so i asked my you asked me what would i be doing if money wasn't an issue and I say a traveling storyteller inspired, you know, a la David, uh, David Blaine, a la Anthony Bourdain, a la uh, Eddie Huang from Viceland. I want to, and the reason I went to Germany is to study engineering school. I want to experience as much of this timeline as I can in my short, brief mm -hmm. extent. Uh, it, I'm, don't tie that to the amount of money that I get, but I know that I need money. I need funds to do what I want to do. I need to be financially free. I can't have a boss telling me, hey, you can't take off this week. Mm -hmm. I can't have that. So yeah, I'm a biomedical engineer. I'm a trader. I'm a medical device sales executive. So I do well, but I don't do it for the money. I do it to free myself up and allow me some time to do what I really want to do. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I want to do those things, but it's not a real, it's not uh, the traveling storytelling, which is how I see myself wanting to do. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, that, that would be the answer. If money wasn't an issue and, uh, I could do whatever I wanted. It would be going from country to country, going from community to community, mm -hmm. from family to family, meeting people, looking at all the ways, different ways that they skin a cat mm -hmm. and seeing what their values are compared to mine and making sure that I experience and I see as much of this world as it is right now, 
before it changes mm -hmm. uh, in my brief time uh, timeline. And I want to document it. I wish to either maybe write a book or maybe film it uh, so that mm -hmm. I can have this uh, digital message that will live past me that tells the people a hundred years from now, because I wish I would have some, somebody like this would have done this a hundred years ago, 200 years ago, how life would have been uh, living on earth in 2021, because in a hundred years, maybe they're on, on Mars and they don't even know what crickets sound like when they walk outside. Right. They don't know what a breeze feels like. They don't know mm -hmm. what the breeze, what the trees and the bush sounds like when the breeze comes through or the coldness mm -hmm. of a lake or the sting of a mosquito bite. Mm -hmm. They might not know that. And so um, in, in my, in my view, what I want to do in my life is be a guardian of our times and mm -hmm. express to them what life was like in 2020 and 2021. Yeah. I mean, not to put you on the spot, but I guess I've developed a little bit of a habit of doing this on this show, but I mean, how do, how do we make this happen? You know, what, are, what are the, uh, what are the steps? And granted, I know that's not an easy thing to, to answer, but it seems like something you've obviously put a good amount of thought behind and something I feel like you'd be very well equipped, well equipped to do. Um, I just always want to give people the, if I can give them any sort of a push to say like, how do we make this a reality? I'm just curious if you've taken any other steps or if this is still kind of a, an idea in your head right now. Oh, well, as, as I see it, my whole life has been about this uh, since even mm -hmm. high school. I didn't go to Florida State University, UF, UCF. I stayed home because I wanted to save money. I, I raised $7,000 working at Domino's, working at Jimmy John's as a college student to go live by myself in Germany for a year. Like, who does that? You know mm -hmm. what I mean? All my decisions, even becoming a professional, even becoming a market trader or coming into sales, is making is my attempt at becoming financially free. And I'm on my mm -hmm. way there, And but I'm patient enough to know that my time has not come yet and I must continue to work to break mm -hmm. the shackles of restraint of the man, the boss, telling me what to do with my life, how I should mm -hmm. live my life. So that's in step number one, become free of the chains per se. Mm -hmm. Step number two uh, would then to be continue to make more friends internationally as I have and make more connections through business to personal. Uh, so that when I have the funds ready, uh, and, and the correct people around me that know more than I do and have some experience, which I know people that make movies, documentaries, stuff like that, mm -hmm. um, that I can reach out to once the time is ready. For example, when I was in Mexico by myself, uh, two years ago, I was spending a couple of days with one of the, uh, Viceland bloggers. He was there, uh, reporting on, uh, okay. children, uh, being abducted and abused and sexually abused and the crime that was uh, being trafficked over there in in, uh, in, uh, in Mexico City. And he was from mm -hmm. Australia. He was an Asian guy from Australia. So we're, we're connected now. That's somebody I can go and say, hey, what's going on in Australia? What, what, what are you writing about now? What are the topics? Um, so my whole life has been about this. Mm -hmm. And once I do break out of those chains and I collect these group of people, uh, which I'm on my way to too, uh, it's only a matter of going out there and having fun and experiencing the world, filming it and seeing what happens. Mm -hmm. so not too much planning after that yeah yeah i mean that clearly you've got you've you have a decent framework around this and i'll I'll certainly stay up with you on that because I, I mean i think it's an awesome idea and it's it's always exciting for me to hear someone speak to their passion in that way and to to just even have that broad perspective of wanting to be more of a storyteller in life and and to just share their perspective in every way possible and to to go out and, and experience the world as much as possible there's it's not really a 
similar to the way that a lot of people kind of frame podcasting and how it's blown up, like it's kind of a non-competitive space where it's not like you're you're trying to push other people out. There's kind of an infinite capacity for the value that can be provided. And it's not like Anthony Bourdain doing what he did means that there's uh, people have lost an appetite for the same thing or that he told this one story or showed us this one way. And now it's like, oh, we've got that. It's there's there's an infinite need for for this kind of storytelling and to just be able to share what it's like to be you in the world is is something I'm fascinated in with every individual and not to keep bringing it back to this, but a huge part of the reason I, I started this is I just, I want to get that as as I, as much as I can from as many people as I can to, to hear from them and, and to see, to at least get a glimpse of what it's like to, to be in their shoes or in their mind yep. living and, in this absurd world. And in a different way, maybe our <clears throat> objectives are then really similar, you know, there's just a, a different method and a, a different way of doing it. But mm -hmm. also, uh, I think that it, it, what it would show would be that we're more alike than we think. People mm -hmm. want to, we were talking about tribalism. That's something that we've been using to survive. And um, I mean, you can argue it's been pretty necessary up until maybe a hundred years ago or sort of like that. Mm -hmm. But um, in amongst the differences, you still love your mom. You still love mm -hmm. your culture. You still have your version of a God, but a God nonetheless. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's in between the differences is where you find the similarities. And so once you start peeling back what it means to be human or what do people care about, you know, in Saudi Arabia, people tend to have the same wants. People want to just want to be successful, happy with their family, uh, go to church. It, these are the similarities that might seem different when you first approach it, but mm -hmm. upon digging a little bit deeper, you're like, oh, he loves his culture just like I love my culture. And it doesn't mm -hmm. have to be a friction on that. You can just be like, hey, you're... You know, I'm Christian, you're Jewish or whatever. I'm Muslim, you're Christian. Uh, I'm peaceful, you're peaceful. You love your God, I love my God. Uh, we, you love your family, I love my family. And, and we could be friends and learn from each other. I don't have to influence you to change. You don't have to influence me to change. We just understand that people are different. That's mm -hmm. the overall like, kind of message on it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's a, a huge gap right now that, that needs to be filled in that space and because I think... And I, we get into it a good amount in, in the last episode I released, but we just feel farther apart than ever. And it's it's not necessarily true, but because of events that have unfolded on a political landscape, it, it feels as though that's the case. And people are almost feel more disconnected than ever, even though in a very literal way, we are more connected than ever right. through the internet, as we've spoken to it's people just, especially, you know, given this past year and the, the ongoing global situation with the pandemic, it's people are having a hard time connecting with and empathizing with others. And they're spending obviously less time being able to whether travel or just have close conversations and all things of the sort. And so we're, there is this intense appetite for content that makes us feel connected in that, in that way. And I think that will continue on for a long time. So for a lot of reasons, I just, to say it one final time, I think this is definitely something that, uh, that's needed out there. And, 
and I hope you you're able to accomplish it in in a timely manner. You know, I I really <laughs> believe in it. Yeah, thanks, man. I appreciate. It. I mean, you'll be you'll be kept in the loop. Maybe you make a guest appearance one day or something like that. We work together in the future. That's what it's all about. <laughs> yeah, I mean, anytime you let me know. Yeah, yeah um, just just blow up, right? Just become famous, and then I become famous <laughs> after you. Uh, I'll, uh, I'll see what I can do, but uh, <laughs> no promises at the moment. It's, it's pretty low key, but um, yeah, as I think I just kind of reminded myself as I was talking about just the general polarization that exists right now and how people feel very separate, but also what that means for people's general comfort level with with having divergent opinions or just sharing how they actually feel because the cost of that just seems so high and i'm curious if there's anything off the top of your head that you'd be open with sharing that you just feel like would be an unpopular opinion that you have that you also feel pretty strongly about um yeah both sides are wrong the answer is always somewhere in the middle uh i usually when i talk to to people they don't realize even that they haven't really taken the time to read up on the facts. And so, you know, for me, you would think that that's intuitive, that the answer is somewhere in the middle, but people mm. always want to force their issue, both sides. And so my opinion is that typically people are wrong, but together we can find out what the right answer is, but people always mm. think that they have the, the answer. So I think that would be the unpopular uh, point would be figure out for yourself what the facts are like real mm -hmm. facts uh, and then from there have some independent thinking and then reflect it on okay what might be going on and what, what are other people saying not the other way around don't start with what people are saying first and then what the facts might be because more often than not you're probably wrong mm -hmm. um, and in that way because what that forces you to do is talk to the other side and nobody mm -hmm. wants to do that you know that's the whole issue sit right. in the middle just observe both sides and try to and try to always think that maybe you're wrong maybe mm -hmm. you're not right how about that yeah i mean i think it's a it's a fair answer to the question because of course most people think that they're right on most things and it's <laughs> to anything that suggested that's maybe not the case is going to be broadly unpopular and it it definitely resonates with me because it's something i've i've spoken to on the record but kind of it's a very similar sentiment that something i always remind myself of is nothing is ever quite as good as bad good or bad as it seems and there's a lot of ways to read that and i think sometimes it maybe rubs people the wrong way because they feel like it's it's like kind of maybe pessimistic or not acknowledging the 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 beauty of life and that's by no means what i intend for it to mean it's just that the way that we the way that our expectations often fool us is, is one of the more challenging things of life. And that when we go into situations, we so often play them up to be far worse or far better than they will be. And that the reality of a situation is always somewhere in the middle, as you kind of spoke to. And whenever you are really amped about something, it's, it's, it's a good thing in a way to, to be excited, but at the same time, it's so easy to build up something that you're anticipating to be more than it ever could be in reality, just on the opposite side of it. When you've got something you're, you're dreading, it's, it's so easy to, for most of the suffering of that experience to be that psychological state going into it, as opposed to the 
actual pain of the moment. Right. Um, so yeah, all that to say, I think it's, it's a fair point and it's, it's one of those things that when you say it, it reminds me about something I say in, in the intro to this show that essentially that this podcast or, or any source should always be a starting point that you should never yep. really trust a single source or a single piece of information. Like you should never take that and map that onto your reality and your world and make changes just because one person said one thing or you read an article somewhere, even if you feel like you can trust it or you generally like the perspectives that I share on this show that if I say something, please don't take it as fact, you know, please, please yeah. fact check me, do your own research. I always say the same thing. Like I'm an idiot. Just check it and take, see for yourself. <laughs> right. I mean, most people kind of are in that sense. Like everybody makes mistakes. Everybody yeah. misspeaks. Um, and we, because of our limited bandwidth, it's, as you spoke to, it's so easy to just kind of grab onto one thing or to take the short version and take that to your next conversation or your next spirited debate with a friend where you're, you're like, Oh, I heard this somewhere. And, and you'll, you'll bear down and say, that's fact. You'll, yep. you'll, yep. you'll really plant hard on that, even though, you know, you haven't really vetted it. You haven't you, you probably even open the link. Yeah. It's <laughs> you're given the headline. Yeah. <laughs> you read the abstract of yeah. the, of the research paper. If you're and, lucky. <laughs> right yeah maybe I'm, I'm being a little too uh too hopeful on that front but yeah it's 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 so easy but it's it's so difficult to it's hard yeah to it's not like everyone has all day to sit around and, and vet every piece of information and there's so much things happening consistently mm -hmm. you know people oh i gotta keep up i gotta keep up they can't mm -hmm. think about a topic think right. about it. like really sit down and think about it step by step mm-hmm Take so much time. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 an incredibly challenging aspect of life, and even when you do try, it's all it takes is one other source to force you to second guess yourself, or you feel f very firm in a certain opinion or a certain data set, and then you hear one other thing, and you're like, oh, not like that. Yeah. <laughs> that that flips everything on its head, and that's, I guess, maybe what I'm getting to is that in conversation, that is kind of the key is that to acknowledge the fact that you're both probably wrong <laughs> and that it's not, it's not like it's one person who's going to be right here. It's you're both probably misrepresenting this issue mostly. Right. And sure there's value in what you're saying, but somewhere in between, if you're disagreeing is probably closer to the truth than the perspective that either of you hold. Right. And as long as we can lower the cost of being wrong so that people feel comfortable doing it yep. and just saying wrong things so that, because that's the easiest way to vet your ideas yeah. and your opinions is to share them with people who can have good, good faith conversation with you yeah. so that when you are wrong, they can be like, no, like, have you considered this or, and you can build up those ideas. And by the way, uh, the only way to beat bad talk is good talk. So the censorship being sold by, shown by some of the uh, tech companies and some, uh, you know, people say progressive liberals or whatever, the censorship, cancel culture, uh, mm -hmm. blocking, let's say Trump. Like, I think what, so I, maybe I shouldn't take it to a political sense, but uh, the blocking and the, and the cancellation of Trump uh, made sense because it came from the government or whatever. And, uh, you know, they obviously they stormed the Capitol and he had just did a speech and he was saying all the stuff he was doing on Twitter, mm -hmm. rallying people up. So it gets a little tense, but he's the president of the United States. 
mm-hmm. in general, though, uh, I don't think that that's the way to go. Uh, the way to go, as much as it pains me, I don't want to hear hate talk. I don't want to hear Nazis on Twitter talking about Nazi stuff. Mm-hmm. But it should be on there. It should be on there because otherwise mm-hmm. they're going to go to another source, an echo chamber, where they're going to collect, they're going to condense their power, and then they're going to act. And we saw what happened uh, in the insurrection. So mm-hmm. the only way to be bad talk is good talk. Uh, it's hard for both sides to do. And we've seen it. Now. They're starting to cancel mm-hmm. people and kind of close certain people off. Not as much as uh, conservatives would like to think or whatever. You know, nobody's being right. silenced. Nobody's being oppressed. Like, it's not something we're not targeting. Uh, it's it's hate speech. Uh, mm-hmm. we're, we're, we're having trouble regulating what can you say on a platform that's still having free speech, Mm. But that's not collecting people to go in a mob and kill other people because nobody wants that. Mm-hmm. It's it's that dance. Uh, and But I think canceling people and including them is, is, it shouldn't be the answer because uh, what's hate speech? You know, mm-hmm. Brandon, you might have a different perspective on what hate speech is. Mm-hmm. And I have my perspective on what hate speech. Who decides? Yeah. Right <laughs> now, by the fact, though, is the tech giants because it's their mm-hmm. private business. Right. Do we want that? We don't want the maybe. The, do we want the government? Do we want some <laughs> randomly appointed guy to decide what hate speech is? Right. Who decides this? Mm-hmm. I think the best one is to have an open discord as much as we can. Uh, it's it's difficult because you got people out there really saying wacko stuff and people mm-hmm. getting behind that. I understand the impulse to say mm-hmm. just get, just get out of here. You know, don't right. don't talk about this stuff here. Mm-hmm. Um, it might not be the right way to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean it's a it's a very nuanced issue and one that as I'm sure you know from what you're saying, has been at the front of a lot of people's minds, especially in tech spaces this past year, because I think most people can agree that there has to be limits. There has to be a line somewhere where you'd say, okay, if someone says X, we just, we can't tolerate that. But there's a lot of disagreements as far as where that line should be. And as you said, who gets to decide what hate speech is? Is it these giant tech companies we probably don't want that is it the government we probably don't want that either that's probably worse and (laughs) right because it's sure when you're let's just say wherever you align politically when your people are in office you're like oh that's great but four years later when it's the other side of things you don't want the government deciding what hate speech is we that's what the constitution is for is to try to keep it as airtight as possible so that there's not exceptions to the rules that can be manipulated based on whoever is in power. Um, So as far as how I fall on it or how I see it, I think I largely agree with you. And I, I mean, I, it's, it definitely pushes the limits of it. What happened uh, earlier this month where it's, it's a situation in which it's, it's very difficult to sit there and say, to take the stance of, the world needs to hear what this man is saying, despite how heinous it is that we need the historical record to show what happened here. And people need to understand the the spectrum of what is being said out there. And it needs to be clear. And we don't, maybe we don't need to be insulated from that so that people lose touch with how heinous some of what is being said is and it's it's difficult because if it is motivating action in the world that's dangerous and but the question obviously has to be is it more dangerous than the alternative and i feel like that is often what's missed where we can say we shouldn't have that because it's dangerous but it's 
it's all you're always comparing one option to the alternative it's never just you can't just eliminate it it's not like these people are going to stop speaking if they're not on twitter exactly it's they're going to find other spaces whether it be uh I don't know what's the new one, parlor, parlor. or whatever. Yeah. Um, you're, you're going to find these situations where, as you said, people are more and more radicalized. Not that that's not already the case to some extent on Twitter, but it's worse in other smaller echo chambers. And we, we, I, I fall on the side of that. We kind of need to see what's happening, especially when this is the president of the United States who for whatever it's worth, that has been the truth for the past four years. And I feel like people should know exactly how ridiculous this all has been. Um, even if it has some costs baked into it, I don't know if it helps us, especially from the perspective of how people who have been radicalized perceive the biases of these tech companies because they, they lean left, it's true. I don't know why we have to dance around that sometimes. It's it's the fact these people in the Valley, it's all of these companies have a political leaning and that makes it uncomfortable because if they're making these broad decisions about what people can talk about or what free speech is or what hate speech is, it does have a political edge. And that's incredibly unfortunate. Not that their politics are unfortunate, just that it is that politics have bled into everything. Yeah, so, everybody's so, human. These companies are ran by humans, which emotions. Right, they're just people who are, yeah. who are doing what they think to be ethical. And I, I can't even condemn them for that. But if you are on the other side of things and you feel like this space, this public space in which the news is being reported and, and that is what Twitter has kind of become, like Twitter is the news, Twitter is this space in which people consume most of their information, it's to, to see it censored, it's, it's going to cause problems. And it's, I, I would hate to be Jack Dempsey, you know, I would hate yeah, to have to be anyone who works in that space to try to figure out how you regulate these spaces and make sure you're not on the hook for any action that happens yep. uh, in the world due to what's happening on your platforms. But I, I do generally fall on the side of, of trying to keep, speech as free as possible and allowing people to see even if there are you know heinous perspectives or dangerous perspectives out there that i think it's important for people not to be blind to those yeah do you have to we have to uh question them and try to understand their perspective as heinous as it might be uh, so that we can attempt to correct them, maybe attempt to introduce some new ideology in their brain, maybe not to change their mind, mm -hmm. but uh, in, a, in an attempt to say, hey, there's there's other things out here too for you to consider. They might go back home and, and maybe search a few things, maybe mm -hmm. uh, recalibrate what their thought might be. Just like defunding the police was is, is ridiculous because you don't solve a problem by making less funds and less resources and, and less programs. You don't mm -hmm. solve hate speech issue by silencing people. Uh, it's mm -hmm. the same idea. You have to let it air out, and that's how people. That's how humans uh, talk. Uh, solve problems. It's mm -hmm. talking. It's discourse. It's let them have a bad opinion, and then let us tell you why that why we think that opinion is incorrect. And then somewhere in there would, would be the answer, right? Mm -hmm. But I don't know. I, I think we'll see how things develop in the next five years, right? In terms of censorship and how that those uh, chips may fall. But I definitely think that's a turning point. And we even, I think it's a turning point now, 2020, 2021, coronavirus. Mm -hmm. And I think we're seeing 
uh, the start of it with GameStop and the Reddit riders yeah. that, uh, that went over there and uh, Robin Hood and, and stole, what, $5 billion away from, I think, from hedge funds and, hedge fund and investors. Uh, mm-hmm. We're starting to see the internet gain its own power, basically, is what I'm trying to say. And we're right. just starting to get step in there and say, oh, fuck, maybe we need to regulate it. <laughs> we're just <laughs> starting with this stuff, right? Uh, right. Bitcoin, another one. Uh, it hasn't been regulated. Banks can regulate it. Governments can regulate it. If they want to, they haven't yet. But again, Bitcoin means decentralization. What does that mean? Government has no control. Governments don't mm. want that. Imagine right. you're a president. And you have no way of controlling your citizens. Mm. You lost all your power when it's decentralized. Yeah, that's scary. Yeah. You, we not, might even want that without even knowing. So there's a lot of questions that are yet to be answered. You know, we're still at the infancy of it. That's why I think we're in the best time to be alive. You know, even more of a reason mm-hmm. to record the times. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and to just jump back to one of the things you, you said at the beginning of that, um, I feel like often we, I guess this kind of reiterates something I already said, but we often lose touch with the problems we're actually trying to solve and the opportunity costs of the decisions that we make. And so whether it be something like hate speech where we we don't want to see, we want to minimize hate speech generally. We, we don't want people to be violent out in the world based on things that they read online. We can agree that these are not things that we want to promote. We can agree that we don't want innocent people shot in the streets. And so we react in a way in the moment to say, how can we put a Band-Aid on this? How can we try to stop this particular instance from happening or this particular kind of instance from happening instead of saying, what is our broader goal here? And what is the actual causation of this problem? And so it's it's very difficult because it's hard not to react emotionally and strongly to these instances of violence in both of these kind of relevant circumstances, especially this year, where we see something that that makes us feel awful and that we we have a visceral reaction to and that we just say this shouldn't happen anymore. No one should ever there should never be another George Floyd. There should never be another Capitol storming. I don't think those are unreasonable sentiments to have, but at the same time, it's what is the alternative? And is this really better? Is this really solving the problem? And that's something that I feel like people are getting more and more uncomfortable asking, especially when it comes down to how their responses might be politicized or even just as we've talked about since the beginning of this show, the color of their skin, where it's, if you, if you aren't on the right side of things from that perspective, it's very difficult to, to speak about some of these issues that relate to race, honestly, because there's a general understanding that you can't understand these things or say certain things or even ask certain questions, um, unless you're from these particular groups or unless you've experienced this. And I of course have empathy for all of that and see where it comes from. But if we really are, if we really do want to solve these incredibly complicated problems, it's, it's not going to come from a place of, of silencing people and, discouraging people from asking questions and having conversations and just going with our first gut reaction to a problem. Yep. 
it won't solve anything. I mean, if anything, it would deepen the divide, which is what we've been seeing. And it doesn't help that there's a, uh, there was what's called a K recovery uh, after COVID. So uh, V recovery would be, you know, we're spiking down. It would have been in March, March 20th, somewhere around there. We're spiking down. Things are selling off. Um, and then it recovers, right? You can see a V recovery in the NASDAQ, in the Dow Jones, and in S&P 500. They've all had V recoveries mm-hmm. where they come down, hit a bottom, and then they come back up. But the economy is different than the stock market. And the economy mm-hmm. uh, has been showing to have a K recovery where things went down together. Uh, but certain people went up and certain people are going down. And the wealth mm-hmm. gap is being even more exaggerated. Combine that with the political issues that we have that you just spoke about, to your point, uh, becoming uh, is an emotional response and it's an absolutist kind of uh, ultimatum. Hey, this can never happen again. That's it. I don't want to hear about it. Mm-hmm. That deepens the divide politically. And we also have a wage uh, separation. So I anticipate... Uh, great changes and uh, some troubles ahead uh, because both politically and uh, wealth-wise, there's a bigger and bigger divergence every day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, I'm glad you brought it up because I think that is often the biggest problem for me that, or at least the one that stays at the front of my mind more than any other, at least right now. And maybe even prior to, to 2020 and how that became more extreme, but it is that the, what do we do with the the growing wealth gap and how do we, how do we remedy that in a way that is, that is reasonable and inequitable and, and that doesn't, that doesn't, you know, cut out the ceiling or, or break our incentive structures, but that, that allows for a certain, movement towards a mean that allows for individuals who are at the bottom end of the spectrum to to have a a sense of a raised floor that we just there's there's not really an argument for scarcity anymore there's enough resources there's enough money floating around there's enough general opportunity but it's it's so disproportionate and some people start from such an unfair and unreasonable place and it's, of course, only getting worse in a year like 2020 where the rich get richer and, and the poor get poorer. And it's it's been a startling trend for a long time, but uh, a, a global situation like this just only makes it worse. And there's not a ton of great solutions on the table, in my opinion. And I'm not trying to sit here and be the person that's just like, all of these are flawed and I don't have anything to put forward. I think there's there's interesting ideas that I've heard, but it's it's hard to think of a way to to remedy the sort of problem that's been building for so long and that's just gaining steam and is causing so many other problems. And I, I've spoken to before that I feel like a lot of our our racial problems and uh, the the amount of I guess division that we see in this country right now, a lot of it does fall along the lines of of this wealth gap as well that in a way that a lot of people maybe aren't accustomed to thinking about it but that a lot of that in its its historical roots in the way in which communities have been impacted in the way in which communities continue to stay in a certain bubble and how that affects race relations and, and the way that people think about other communities and the way that people stay very segregated in a way that we we touched on earlier. It's that people aren't 
actually interacting with with people from a different class, if you will, or that have uh, a different sort of experience in life that if we could do our best to move beyond race as a factor and more so look at wealth and say that there's there's poor people, there's people in need, there's disadvantaged people of all sorts. And the disconnect is is largely based on wealth. And it's that a lot of people who have a lot have a hard time thinking about the problems of those who have very little, but those are often their advocates. And once again, I put air quotes on that in a political space and in a institutional space where people who have little interaction with or understanding of the people who are really in need are trying to put forward these solutions that are very myopic and that are very out of touch with the needs of these actual communities and these people who just have so little and have so little resource and so little opportunity. So it's, um, I'll back off of it a little bit because like I said, I don't have a, a great solution, but I, I just definitely wanted to acknowledge my framing of that similar sentiment about the growing wealth inequality and how it's just maybe our most urgent problem and that we're not necessarily going to find a sense of, of, uh, collectivism or even a radical humanism in this country or even in this whole planet without some sort of coming together on that one front um, and finding a way to to close that gap a little bit more so so that the the floor is higher but the ceiling isn't necessarily destroyed yep and i think it's the issue of the time i think if it goes unaddressed Anything can happen. I mean, I don't want to say civil war and stuff like that, but maybe you know it's happened. Yeah, it's very possible. Yeah, similar before. Yeah, have you ever heard the um, the sentence "Stay woke"? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I, I dig a little bit of history. I was looking into the election of Abraham Lincoln. The reason that he won, or the reason that he had the you know the the the, the fighting power to kind of push through all this and make it a movement, uh, separate from him. Uh, the, an or, another organization, I forgot who started it, started the Wide Awakes in the 1800s. Mm. And they were wearing leather hats, leather jackets, and they had a lantern, similar to how they did it in uh, Virginia for Donald Trump with the torch. Oh, right. yeah, no yeah, torch, yeah. no torch, a lantern. And all, they called them the oil, the oil suits or whatever, the silk suits. And they were called the Wide Awakes. And they were the party that helped, not party, but an organization, militia group, really, that helped to uh, make Abraham Lincoln the president because he was the only anti-slavery candidate, by the way. Uh, mm-hmm. There were four candidates in total. The other three were pro-slavery, and so the the pro-slavery vote was split. It wasn't like mm-hmm. a lot of people really wanted anti-slavery. Mm-hmm. There was just too many pro-slavery votes, which was three, and he was the only anti-slavery and kind of like a moderate, so he kind of won everybody else. Mm-hmm. And together with the wide awakes, you know, or you know what happened. The rest is history. They went to civil war and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But those wide awakes ended up being uh, the Union soldiers that, flew, that that fought in the war. And mm-hmm. even still today, we still have remnants of that. You know, stay woke is from the wide awakes from yeah. back then. It's still mm-hmm. we're still uh, echoing the same uh, yells uh, from back then. And so it's not. And, and, and now you saw that we had an insurrection at the Capitol. Also hasn't happened since the 1800s. And so it's not outside of the realm of possibility that we might be headed to a more tumultuous time. Something that looks closer to civil war than not. And 
I think that at the center of that is wealth inequality because why were they fighting over slaves? It was because of worth, uh, value, net worth. Mm -hmm. They were producing a lot, but they didn't have to work a lot, so they're, they were richer. Once resources get shifted around and you got more people in need, now there's a desire for change. That's not mm -hmm. always what people want. That's what we're faced with now. More communication. And by the way, at that time when the election for Abraham Lincoln, Oppenheimer had uh, introduced the printing press, which changed the speed and amount of information that people from around the, the nation can, can, can get information. Now, instead mm -hmm. of one Bible, there's 10,000 Bibles. So now many, many people can read it. There was newspapers, New York Times, Wall Street Journals, all that stuff kind of followed after the printing press, which is our version of the Internet today. How funny is it that when the printing press was invented by Oppenheimer and news can spread, uh, you know, within a couple of days or whatever, and many, many people can read it, and then many journals can pop up, that's when you get different type of firms. How funny is it that 100 and whatever years later, uh, the Internet's new method of communication just started in the early 2000s, and mm -hmm. we're running through the same thing, almost the same. Stay woke, insurrection at the Capitol, you know, growing uh, wealth inequality so these are real issues and in my opinion at the core of it is the wealth uh, inequality gap if that doesn't get mm -hmm. addressed then I don't, I don't think and there's a rising power in china too they're probably going to be the uh standard currency replacing the dollar and, and, and that's a whole nother conversation i don't yeah. you know that's uh there's always been a central source of uh, wealth in the world like a central economy it used to be amsterdam but then that shit blew up with the tulip mania then it used to be uh, the United Kingdom, you know, East India Company, the pound was the center. Um, then the gold was, and then the Americans did some magic shifting stuff. And then it was, the, now it's the dollar. Right. Uh, now it's the dollar. They tied it to gold. That's why I say that, because it was gold first. And now they're predicting it's China more like 2025. It's the same thing that was happening uh, back then, uh, I, I, you know, in the 1800s. So I say all that to say this. The core problem, in my opinion, and I, I am an idiot, right? Everybody go look this shit up yourself. But right. as much as I can gather, it seems like we have to tackle the wealth inequality so that resources are all the same, so that people, when they have a voice, they're powerful and they have enough resources to follow through and do what they want to do. If people are suppressed, they can't talk. They, if they're too hungry to talk, they're not going to do shit. So mm -hmm. uh, the only thing that I can, and I don't know enough at all, but Andrew Yang's you know, universal income, and I know that Biden's uh, pushing at the federal level, uh, minimum wage, 15 bucks. I think that's a good start. I think having a wider spread... Uh, distribution of of money uh, or resources uh, gives certain people a good opportunity to reinvest that, make some purchases, and make some decisions and restructure and mm -hmm. and, and 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 contribute to the economy. Some people are going to go to the strip club and burn it. I mean, I know those I know those guys too, right? That's like twenty percent. Right. <laughs> so for not sure, for everybody, but but I think the key is going to be uh, as we tackle climate change, as we tackle this growing power in the West, as we tackle the wealth inequality gap, as we tackle the issues, the differences that we have in politics, can we implement a system that gives the citizens the resources that they need, aka higher minimum wage, double almost, $15 an hour, but still tie it to real productivity? Because if you give people uh, money or resources without actually getting something from it or meaning them contributing to society in mm -hmm. the version of productivity, which is, by the way, how the market works. That's why it keeps going up every year because supposedly humanity increases productivity historically on average 3% a year. That's how much more productive we get as a society, 3%. That's what the S&P typically goes 3%, 5%. So if we can increase 
the federal minimum wage of 15 bucks, but still tie it to real productivity, something that these people really do uh, produce or some type of service, uh, then we'll be uh, headed in the right direction. But if we do nothing, it's the wrong direction. And if we start handing out too much money, inflation goes rampant, prices of goods go up, the value of the dollar goes down, which is already happening, which, by mm -hmm. the way, they've injected 40% more or something like that. I think I read on Barron's more dollars into the system. So you have more supply, not necessarily more demand. Prices of goods go up, dollar goes down. That's buying power for the dollar. If, mm -hmm. So, so it's, it's, it's a tricky dance. It's hitting it right in a sweet spot. And mm -hmm. uh, I'm always uh, curious every day to see what our trajectory is uh, mm -hmm. because it influences my decisions. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely on whole just uh, agree that it is it is the most pressing issue of our time and i think there was so much you said there that was that was interesting and that i'd like to respond to but i think ultimately one thing i'd like to jump back to is just to highlight something that i feel like often goes unsaid on this topic and when you touched on the the possibility of a civil war or some sort of uprising that in some degree we've already seen that there's there's limitations to how long this can be sustainable and it looked like this and, <laughs> yeah <laughs> for sure but um yeah i mean it's i think it sometimes goes unsaid that individuals who let's just say are in the one percent of the one percent of the one percent that these elites who seem to have it made who are driving this gap it is not in their best interest for this to continue that it is in no one is going to win here it's a zero-sum game and even if you are someone who feels like you're set and you're sitting back and you're part of that select group that's holding 95 percent of the wealth that is by the that way is in, that's in not essence, here that it's some island where there's only 10 people living in bermuda where one business in Bermuda that has no services has millions and millions of dollars in revenue monthly so that they mm -hmm. don't have to pay taxes here. So not only do they store the wealth outside of the country mm -hmm. that's not being circulated in our economy, but they're not mm -hmm. even paying the taxes that's right. due. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a huge problem and that's a whole conversation in and of itself. But yeah, I mean, it's as made clear by the the allusion to a, a civil war or an uprising, nobody wins there. And even those who feel like they could be insulated from that sort of thing, the the gap is growing so large that it is just it's most people. It is the huge majority, it's ninety-nine point nine percent of people who are now in this group of the have nots. And so there's there's no situation in, in which that tiny percentage comes out unscathed once dissatisfaction reaches a point, a tipping point, that it's even for those who it seems like maybe this is a good thing or whatever, no one is really winning here. And we have to do something. And I know you brought up UBI or raising the, the minimum wage, which I, I think are are both interesting ideas. I've, I've talked about UBI before on the show and I, I think it's a promising development. I don't know if we're there yet um, as far as public support or institutional support, but 
I think we will get there soon that we'll have to, well, A, we'll see that there's enough people who simply don't necessarily have a role or have the training to compete with uh, our advancing technology. And that's a lot of the base that, uh, I guess to not get into it too much, but that elected Trump or individuals who lost their jobs, had their jobs outsourced, who felt kind of left behind by the previous um, the previous cabinet and who are just sitting around not having anything to do and f- feeling like they needed someone to be their advocate. And obviously they were incredibly duped and I feel bad for those people, honestly, for whatever that's worth. But that population is only going to grow and it's going to look even more different. And it's where a lot of the anti-immigration sentiment comes from. All these different issues converge on this, this, issue of wealth being too too spread out or not too spread out but too focused into a, a particular community in which the people at the bottom are are upset and they're dissatisfied and they feel left behind and they feel unrepresented and unless we figure out something that allows for the quality the base quality of life in what i think is in a lot of ways fair to still say is the greatest country in the world we have to do better and we have to have better solutions that can really make this feel like the the country that it is and that it has been historically. Uh, but it's, it's not going to be easy and it's going to take something relatively uncomfortable or quote unquote radical to, uh, to get us there. And even I, if it does have those costs of, yeah, some people are going to waste that money. Some people are still going to sit on their asses, but that doesn't mean we do nothing just because some people are going to take advantage. Yeah, it's a small margin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, just to make a little bit of a, uh, a hard pivot because I wanted to hit on this. It's something I've been talking about with friends recently as this global situation just continues to persist and we're kind of almost a year out at this point. But I'm curious just what you miss most about normalcy. Mm, damn. That's a lot, right? Mm-hmm. I miss uh, I miss getting out there and, and feeling and feeling like um, you know the world is alive again. You know, I'm mm-hmm. I'm pulling up to Winwood and the, the club is banging. Um, guys or girls are out. Everybody's having fun. Beers flowing. That energy where you can detach yourself uh, outside of your everyday life. Because now I'm working from home. Like I, mm-hmm. you know, and um, I'll probably be working from home more even after because this is here to stay probably. But mm-hmm. you work from home, you're home, you can't really go out, you have to wear a mask, there's rules and regulations and all that stuff. So I think, but I can still go out, right? I go do sports, I'm hiking, I'm fishing, I do a lot of, I keep myself busy and I have a lot of projects that I do. But I do miss still going out and raging, man, just going to the club and just <laughs> hanging out with people and just getting blitzed, you know, just without worrying about COVID, without wearing restrictions or how many people I'm, you know, are in the building right now, um, making prior reservations. I miss the wildness of the world. I miss the energy. I miss uh, mm-hmm. I miss going out there and just seeing crazy things and uh, traveling because mm-hmm. I had when COVID hit I had a plan to, I had tickets bought to Colorado canceled uh, we had plans to go to Peru canceled we mm-hmm. booked some uh, flights uh, later to go to San Diego canceled uh, we were <laughs> like I can go down the list every time we tried to go somewhere else canceled I mean because it was just too difficult we didn't know it was unknown it's easier not to go than to go so we said okay we'll just push it back later. I have friends that mm. had a marriage canceled, had a uh, like a wedding, right? Canceled many mm. of those. Um, so I miss 
getting out there again with the people and just the vibe and just sharing an experience. Because uh, going back to traveling storytelling, the reason, and, and, and I use this all the time in sales, uh, and any successful sales person would say the same thing, the best way to sell something is not by the, you know, they're just selling it. it humans understand uh, ideas and uh, just information better when it's in the format of a story. Introduction, mm-hmm. antagonist, protagonist, the climax, there's a conflict, there's a resolution. That's how we're accustomed to understanding information because of this campfire that we call a computer nowadays. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I say that's a throwback to the old Stone Age. And so if you're just doing stuff for yourself, like if you did, if you did this podcast and only from your room and you didn't meet anybody in person, there was no publications on this. They never went on YouTube. You never did any interviews. You, you didn't go to any events. Mm-hmm. You would hate that because mm-hmm. even if you got all the money, even you got millions of dollars, you're just doing this all day. Why? Mm-hmm. Because life is about sharing those experiences with people. Life is about sharing the stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, once people are not out there, there's no more stories. There's no more sharing. Uh, life is about sharing. So I miss the sharing aspect of it, right? Going out mm-hmm. there and just getting wild. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I definitely can relate to that, even though I think at base, I'm I'm a little bit more of an, intro, an introvert for whatever that means. Yeah, that's that cool I, too. I think I, though under normal circumstances, I'm, I, I, I'm comfortable spending a lot of time alone by myself, doing my own thing. I, I certainly have a, a decent for whatever that's worth social life. But I think the more this persists, the more I do appreciate the value that that comes from the energy you get from others. And just as you said, being out there and being able to for in whatever way you do that, just getting kind of lost in some sort of group experience, whether that be a, a concert or a um a party or a, a sport activity, you know, anything that you can kind of, you feel like it's a shared collective experience where you're, you're out of your own head, you're out of yourself. And there's, there's definitely a lot of value in that release that I feel like people aren't necessarily getting. And of course, as you spoke to, there's still things that you can do. And I try to get outside as much as I can, but obviously that's tough in the winter. Uh, I guess you're down in Florida, so it's not as bad, but, um, That's perfect. Yeah, you know, it's per- I, was just, I was just outside um, meditating before I even come in here. No shirt. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, that would be great. I definitely miss that. But, uh, in, in these climates where it's, we, we get a real winter. It's, I do miss the seasons though. I'll give you that. that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The leaves change yeah, the color I mean, there in, uh, where you're at. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, just, uh, Top to one final thing before we've we've got to log off. Um, I did just want to ask, given everything we've talked about today, and I know we've we've touched on a lot of different issues that maybe have a broad theme as well, that if you could just send out a message, you know, a text to every smartphone in America right now, what would it say? Uh, it would say, don't be afraid. Go see for yourself. The world is waiting. Yeah. I like that. Is there anything in particular that inspired that? Is that something you try to live by? Yeah. It's something I try and live by. Um, if you spend too much time worried about only what's around you, you miss how wide and how beautiful the world can be. Uh, and once you're out there and experiencing it, it's actually not that scary. So Mm -hmm. I challenge you, you know, all the listeners in here, 
Um, if there's something that you wanted to do that you've been putting off, just go do it. Maybe go do three for three days straight. Do everything you normally don't do. If you play video games, don't play video games for three days. If you never go outside, go outside for three days. If you're always outside, stay inside for three days. Usually, the greatest fear is fear itself. Mm-hmm. So go out there and do it. Yeah. I mean, the the world is waiting. And there's still a lot to be done, even though this this has been a very strange and challenging time. So I, I appreciate you coming on, Kevin. I think it's a wonderful message to leave the audience with. And as I said before, I'll definitely be checking back in, keeping tabs on you about Likewise. about this this ongoing project. And uh, I hope we can do this again soon. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Brandon. It's always fun, always uh, providing value and sharing our thoughts with people is always the best thing we could do. Yeah, I agree. And uh, thanks all y'all for joining. 